0: I'm James Brian Smith. Welcome to the Things Above podcast. Today's thought from above is this: the way of Jesus is both and. If you missed the pod episode or this is your first time listening, this is a podcast for what we call mind discipleship. It's a podcast for those who want to set their minds on things above. That's where the name of the podcast comes from, from Colossians three one and two, where Paul encourages us to set our minds on things above, setting our minds on. Good, beautiful, and true thoughts on uplifting, encouraging, life-giving, biblically-based thoughts from above is not easy, and that is why we do this podcast, to provide for you in each episode a thought from above that you can dwell upon so that your heart will be warmed and you will become an epiphany of grace. Many years ago, I was preaching at a church, and as usual, I was preaching about grace. They say preachers, and writers for that matter, really only have one message, and I talked about that a few episodes back with Eugene Peterson, who said he only had one message. And I suppose my one message is about grace. Grace is God acting in our life to do what we cannot do by direct effort. That's a great Dallas Willard definition. Grace is God acting in our life to do what we cannot do by direct effort. As you may have noticed in these podcasts, I like to talk about God using active verbs God loves, God forgives, God heals, God restores, etc. That's what grace is God acting, God doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Now, God's grace is commonly thought of as quote, the forgiveness of our sins. Many people reduce grace to just the forgiveness of sins. So then grace defined by many people would be the act of Jesus on the cross forgiving the debt of our sins. And that is absolutely true. We could never earn or merit the forgiveness of our sins. So yes, absolutely, grace is seen clearly in God's act in Christ to wipe away our sins. But grace, by that definition I'm using, is more than that. So, let me repeat it again. Grace is God's action in our lives to do what we cannot do by direct effort. And I believe there is a lot at stake in properly defining grace. Recently, a friend of mine sent me an email. He was asking for some help. He was in the middle of a friendly debate with another friend of his, and the subject was about faith and works, a classic debate in the Christian life. Put simply, my friend had stated that, well, look, Jesus' death on the cross forgave all of our sins for all time. Now, if you've listened to this podcast, you've probably heard me say that a lot. This is known as the finality of the cross, and I preach it a lot. I teach it a lot, and I believe it's Absolutely true. I believe that it's biblically accurate, and that, if properly understood, should lead us to praise and worship, to doxology and adoration, to love and obedience. If it's misunderstood, it can and often does lead to a license to sin, to a lack of obedience, and a lack of discipleship or apprenticeship to Jesus. Which is exactly what my friend's friend said to him in reply. He said, well, look, if we're forgiven for all of our sins for all time, what's the foundation for our life in Christ? Really, really brilliant response. That question is really good. But it also shows a misunderstanding of grace because he's assuming that grace, God's forgiveness of all our sins once and for all on the cross, leaves us with no foundation for life. And that would be true, but again, you can only arrive at that conclusion if you think that grace is merely the forgiveness of sins. Grace is the answer to two equal and opposite errors. One error is believing that grace means I can sin all I want, which is a license to sin. Or two, thinking that grace only forgives some of our sins, but we have to do something We have to confess. We have to do something on our part to get the rest of our sins forgiven, which is legalism. And this is why there are so many Christians who are caught in one of these two snares, license on the one hand or legalism on the other. So, I want to talk about a big word for a minute, and that word is ontology. Ontology refers to the nature of being. The ontology of an onion, well, what is it? An onion is a multi-layered vegetable, an edible bulb with a pungent taste and smell, composed of several concentric layers, often used in cooking. Okay, I just told you the ontology of an onion. And the ontology of an onion is going to be different than the ontology of an egg. Their nature, their being, is different. Everybody knows this. Okay, so let's go a little bit deeper. You got to stay with me here. What is our ontology? What is the nature of our being? Well, you and I are embodied souls that have been designed by God with different needs and capacities. We have, for example, a spirit that longs for God. We have a mind that can think and reason and feel and imagine. And we have a will that can act. Our souls long for things like community and connection, for meaning and purpose. And note this, our souls actually long for purity. It's crucial that we understand our nature, our ontology, in this discussion about grace. In fact, Dallas Willard said, without a proper ontology, our spiritual formation will degenerate into legalism. What Dallas meant by that is, if you don't understand the nature of who you are, if you don't start with who you are, what your being consists of, you're going to turn your formation into legalism, trying to earn something. But I would also add, without a proper ontology, we're also going to degenerate into license, especially if we misunderstand grace. Let me give an example by going back to the story I started with at the beginning in which I was preaching about grace at a church many years ago. Preaching, I guess you could say, my one message, as it were. My main point was that God loves us without condition, that God loves us deeply no matter what we've done or do or will do, and that God in Christ has forgiven us, that God is no longer dealing with us on the basis of our sins. There's Jim's message. So after the service, there were two people who were waiting to talk with me. And I could tell the way they were kind of hanging back that they, they wanted to speak with me privately. They didn't want to be within an earshot of someone else. The first was a, was a large man, kind of a burly guy. He told me right away, he said, look, I'm a, I'm a policeman. And he said, I was raised in a really legalistic home and church. He said to me, I've never heard a message like you just gave. I have never heard about grace in this way. What you said, somehow the Holy Spirit used what you said to truly set me free. And I told him that I was really glad and I thanked him for sharing that with me. He walked away. Then the second person was a young woman and she came up to me when she felt safe that she could just talk to me. And she says, Wow, that sermon really helped me. Thank you. And I said, Well, thank you. I, I said, may I ask in in what way it helped you? She said, well, actually, for the past six months, I've been living with my boyfriend, and I feel, you know, pretty guilty about it. I have felt guilty about it. But when you said that God loves me no matter what, and that Christ has forgiven me for all my sins, for all time, I just had this incredible sense of relief. She smiled at me, she turned, and she took off. She just started walking away with a kind of a bounce in her step. But it left a deep sadness in me because I understood that she had misunderstood what grace is. Now, I stand by the truth that God loves us unconditionally. stand by the truth that on the cross, Christ has forgiven all of our sins for all time. Jesus doesn't have to get on that cross again. He just did it. The sadness came for me because she had misunderstood and twisted the message of grace to mean something that it doesn't and this is because of ontology the nature of our being and that nature is this you and i as i've said you and i are embodied souls we are not designed for sin now we are in a broken world we come into this world broken as well but God's act in Christ on our behalf is to reconcile us to God, to change fundamentally who we are. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.17-19 is so important. Let me read it. So if anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, And has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. Okay, a lot to unpack here. When we are in Christ, when we put our confidence in Jesus, when we say, Yes, to Jesus, you are Lord of my life, when that happens, we are in Christ. That was Paul's favorite way to define a Christian. He says, we are in Christ or Christ is in us. He uses that phrase 89 times. So what happens, Paul's saying here in 2 Corinthians 5, is that we are all new creatures. This is the work of God. God did this by reconciling us to himself. Got to pause here. Notice that God reconciles us to himself, not the reverse. God is the one who fixes us. God's the one who cleanses us. God's the one who makes us righteous. God takes what is broken, and he heals it. God takes us who are out of fellowship with him and invites us into fellowship with him. Now, we often think, well, I've got to do something to make God less angry with me. I've got to do something to get God to forgive me. So I'll fast and pray and confess and go to church a lot and whatever it is. I've got to do something to get the unhappy God happy with me. No, God reconciles us. God fixes us. As Brian Zahn said so well, Jesus did not come to get God to change his mind about us. He came to change our mind about God. We're the ones who are far from God. As the saying goes, and I've said it many times if you feel far from God, ask who moved. So God's the one who reconciles who? Us. But not just us. Paul said in that verse, God reconciles the world. That's everybody. God reconciles us by doing what? No longer, quote, counting their sins against them. That's exactly Paul's phrase. God in Christ stopped counting our sins and he never restarted. So, then we have to ask, to what end? Why did God reconcile us? Why is God no longer counting our sins against us? Is he now putting us in a place that we can just sin all we want so that grace will cover it? No. Again, Paul deals with this question in Romans chapter 5.20. He begins by saying, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Let me say that again. Where sin increases, so the more you sin, Grace increases all the more. Okay, so that's going to lead to a question, and then he addresses that in Romans 6 verse 1. What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? There's the question. I suspect Paul heard that question many times. It's a rhetorical question in this letter, in this epistle, but I suspect Paul heard that question. Hey, Paul, can we Can we just sin all we want? I mean, grace, you said, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. So, can we do that? In fact, I heard uh, a New Testament scholar say, You haven't actually preached the gospel until people say that. Until people ask that question, you probably haven't preached the gospel yet. So, Paul heard that question Can we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? How does Paul answer it? By no means. In the Greek, it's a little harsher than that. It's meganoita in the Greek, which is, can't quite find uh, words that don't sound like expletives without saying what Paul means. But he, he's, uh, it's uh, how about heck no, let's go with that. He's like, no way, you can't. But now listen to why he says we can't continue in sin in order that grace may abound. He says this, how can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Paul's answer is ontology. He doesn't say, no, 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 you can't keep on sinning. God's going to get mad or God's going to put those sins back on your ledger. No, no. He says, hey, Paul, can we sin all we want Grace graceful amount? No. He's saying, don't you know who you are? Don't you know who you are? He goes to ontology because that's the solution here. So, can we sin all we want because of grace? Well, yes, we can, in the sense that grace will, of course, abound. We can't exhaust grace. But no, in the sense that our freedom to sin was not what Christ died for. We are all new creatures, not designed for sin, but free from its power. Christ is the new Adam. See, we start with the fall when we think about it. But no, Christ, Paul said, is the new Adam. He's restored us. So the now sin is that which just destroys us. We're not made for it anymore. So grace, then, is more than forgiveness of sins. Grace also creates all new people. Grace makes us holy. Grace breaks the power of the canceled sin, as Charles Wesley wrote. Now, I've noticed that we humans, we want either or. We want either all law or all grace, either all faith or all works, either all justice or all mercy. But the way of Jesus holds these in tension. It's the both and. Grace is not opposed to holiness. Grace inspires holiness. Grace is opposed to earning, but not opposed to effort. Faith isn't opposed to works faith is opposed to merit. Mercy is not opposed to justice. Mercy is opposed to contempt. We need mercy because of the sacredness of the human person. That doesn't negate justice. See, this is all because God's desire is not to punish us for our sins, but to free us from its grip. God's desire is not to offer mercy in such a way that justice is thwarted, but in order to establish a relationship with us, to heal us, to be in fellowship with us, that's why there's mercy. Okay, so back to the young woman who heard my sermon as a license to do whatever she wanted to do without any guilt. A few months later, I had the opportunity to talk with her again and to talk with her about holiness, God's holiness and our holiness. I explained to her that God does not condone sinful actions but not because God's approved. And here's what I said there I said, the reason God does not endorse what you're doing is because you're sacred to God, and your sexuality is sacred to God. Your sexuality is a gift from God, a sacred part of the ultimate commitment two people make in the covenant of marriage. Anything less cheapens and diminishes our sexuality and causes harm to our embodied souls. You are sacred and special. And I suspect that's why you felt bad. She said, you know, I know exactly what you mean. After a while, it seemed to me that he was only interested in me sexually and not as a person. Our relationship is kind of a mess. What should I do? I said, well, tell him no more sex until you're married. She said, oh, well, he'll say the relationship is over. I said, well, then you'll know his true colors and you'll be better off without him. The next time I saw her, she told me she'd actually followed my advice. And as expected, her boyfriend did not like it, and they eventually broke up for good. However, this time when I saw her, she was smiling, much to my surprise, because she told me that story. Well, it was over, but she's smiling. I'm going, whoa, whoa, what's going on? She said, you know what? I wasn't focusing on the sacredness of who I was and I thought, okay, you got it. You got it. Two years later, I saw her again. She showed up outside of my office beaming. She pointed to a ring on her finger and exclaimed, I'm engaged to the most wonderful guy. He truly respects me. We decided to wait until we're married to have intercourse. Thanks for showing me who I really am. I was so grateful to hear this. See, grace does not nullify the law, it frees us to fulfill it. Freedom does not negate holiness, it inspires it. Faith does not abolish works, it motivates it. The Jesus way is both and, not either or. And we have to learn how to live in that blessed tension. Oh, and let me follow up with a story about the policeman. So, five years later, I went back to that same church to preach. And once again, he was there to greet me after the service. And once again, he looked very serious. But this time he had a tear in his eye. Instead of speaking to me directly, he just held out his phone, which I thought, oh, why are you showing me your phone? I was really confused. He said, what what I'm pointing to on my phone here is the recording of that sermon you gave about grace. I have listened to it, he said, a hundred times. I said, well, you're kidding, right? He goes, no. I have listened to that a hundred times, and it has set me free to love God, set me free to walk in holiness. It's just changed my life. It's impacted me in so many ways. God's grace has made me a good husband and a father and a policeman, and I just want to say, thank you. I said, don't thank me. Thank the God who set you free. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. I hope you join me next time. And until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith. And you can learn more about this podcast. And if you'd like to donate to the Things of a podcast, you can do so on our website, ApprenticeInstitute.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. And you can also subscribe, which means you're going to get them automatically each week. My hope, as always, is that one day if you're asked, what's on your mind, your answer will be, things above.